This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 8th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court says it's constitutional for states to punish electoral college voters for going rogue, for being faithless, for being conscientious electors. Cato's Walter Olson comments on the decision and provides some of the background of what it means for an elector to go against the will of voters. This term, faithless electors, I don't like it. Well, it prejudges part of what uh, was up in the air, which is when someone is elected for uh, as an elector for a presidential ticket, and then they vote for someone else, should we admire what they do or uh, should we blame them? And faithless electors kind of uh, <laughs> prejudges uh, which way that should come out. So uh, the term I prefer is conscientious electors. Well, that does the same thing in reverse, but <laughs> the court... Um, tried not to get into the personal moral issues of whether or not you should behave that way in favor of the history and the constitutional structure. So what tells us, what tells us that an elector, uh, may be constrained in his or her ability to make a choice other than the one chosen by the state legislature and by extension, the voters to whom the state legislature has delegated the decision. You've got several sources of possible obligation here. And of course, in the direct cases from Washington and Colorado that the court decided, the state legislature had passed bills saying, if you are going to run on the slate, then you have to vote uh, for the committed candidate. Uh, and uh, the question is, is uh, that kind of state law, not only um, valid, and the, and the court back in the 1950s had uh, heard a case about uh, the pledge in Alabama that they were required to sign. So that had already brought up the general issue of whether it's okay to uh, take away their discretion. Okay, so uh, it, it wasn't the question not necessarily about uh you know, making good on your pledge, but the actual punishment that may be exacted against you for having violated that pledge? The consequences were the issue this time, and the court had not ruled in the earlier case about whether or not uh, they could punish the elector with a fine, uh, or whether they could remove the elector before uh, the electoral college cast its votes, which of course is a more powerful sanction because people might be willing to take the fine and, and, and do it. But if they get removed before they have the chance, then um, the state has really um, moved in its power to decide how the electoral vote gets cast. Now, uh, to what extent uh, do we understand, at least historically, that electors are free to act uh, on matters of conscience? That is, uh, I spoke in 2016 with Mike Lee, uh, the senator from Utah, and of course, this was weeks before the election that we spoke. And I asked him uh, something like, well, what is it that prevents an elector from choosing someone other than their uh, candidate to whom they have been pledged? And he said, absolutely nothing. 
And in fact, through American history, this has happened again and again and again. The Libertarian Party got on the map as far as public awareness, in part because of two of these instances, one in which uh, Roger McBride, as a Virginia elector, uh, voted for the Libertarian candidate, and I believe it was- Instead of Nixon. Yeah. And then I think it was four years later when McBride was himself the Libertarian nominee, and uh, an elector in another state uh, defected and voted for McBride. That was a publicity bonanza for the, obviously it didn't change the results of the election, but it made a statement. So what what is your view as a, as a personal matter? That is, uh, should electors be able to, uh, can states punish or should they be able to punish electors who choose to go a different way? Well, let's take that legal question and leave my personal feelings out of it because the Supreme Court always does leave my personal feelings out of it. Uh, the, um, Much to my chagrin, <laughs> they leave your personal feelings out of exactly. it. Exactly. The court ruled unanimously that these laws are uh, constitutional, that states may uh, remove the elector or find the elector. Um, and they got there by a couple of different routes, and that's part of the interest of the case, as well as the little remarks that uh, Justice Kagan writing for the majority and Justice Thomas in a dissent uh, threw off when they were deciding. I think one of the things that made this case uh, forward in conclusion, especially for judges that might have been tempted to go off on their own path, is that they saw the 1952, I think it was, case uh, that the court had handled as already having resolved the basic issue. That Now we're down to the details. But since then, and that was an interesting case, not unanimous, uh, Justices Jackson and Douglas dissented on uh, that very philosophical ground that the uh, framers of the Constitution had uh, had in mind a much more independent-minded role for the electors, that they had um, uh, talked in their debates uh, on the assumption that people might be going in there exercising judgment in a, in a Burkean representative sense of who ought to be president rather than just having pledged their vote. And so uh, it makes an interesting dissent, but uh, by this point, you've got several different things converging for this 9-0 win. Uh, and let me jump over to the dissent because it's interesting, um, and Ilya Shapiro, our colleague, has praised it as being, uh, in his view, more, uh, closer to the constitutional intent, which is just um, the power starts with the states to begin with, and we may like or we may not like how they exercise it, but um, you don't need to get the, the Constitution is silent, so argued Justice Thomas, on exactly uh, uh, how the states are to do this. And so you assume that states start out with the power. Uh, if you go to early American history, you find that for quite a while, states were uh, pulling off what we would now see as stunts, like having the state legislature choose the electors itself. Uh, and uh, it's not clear that Thomas and Gorsuch would uh, defend a state that tried to do that now, but they would start with the pre premise that uh, this isn't for the federal uh, government to regulate unless the Constitution says so. And uh, 
Kagan, on the other hand, and she brought along uh, several members of the conservative majority, uh, probably because this uh, is something involving uh, precedent and long usage. The precedent set in the 1950s and the long usage that uh, Kagan stressed throughout the opinion, which is that uh, however they may have thought the system would work, uh, by the way, this gets us back to originally uh, uh, feelings about how the, the, the government will work versus the literal language, which did not prevent states from doing this. But she said, um, she quotes Madison and says uh, effectively that uh, on matters of this sort, long usage can wind up creating solid constitutional law, and it has done so here. And so she got the Alitos and the, the Roberts and so forth. So uh, is, it, is it fair to say that some of the justices uh, take the view that um, being able to compel electors or punish electors who go their own way is just part of having uh, state legislatures technically in charge of uh, deciding to whom electors shall go. Yes, I think the the idea she, that she articulated and, and that most of the court signed on to is that uh, states are allowed to regulate within broad boundaries and that in this case, uh, the motivation for doing so was a constitutional motivation uh, to bring the state's electoral votes more closely into line with what the majority of the voters wanted. Now, there's a very interesting footnote in her opinion, footnote four, which people have seized on because it could um, uh, be a guide to future cases. Uh, she pointed out that uh, just because the states have this discretion doesn't mean that the Constitution is silent about all the ways they could use it. And she gives two examples. One is the Equal Protection Clause. So if a state, for example, said only men can be electors, um, no, their discretion would not extend to that. Not too surprising. The second example that she gives is if the states tried to tinker with the qualifications for being president uh, through rules about electors, that might violate the Constitution because of its Presidential Qualifications Clause. You may have realized exactly what controversy this gets at, which is uh, a bunch of states have debated whether or not they can require presidential candidates to release their tax returns on penalty of, we won't let you have electors if you don't release your tax returns. And I think Kagan, for seven justices, clearly signals uh, that's in our cross sites, that's probably not constitutional, which is also what I think and what a lot of governors have thought. Uh, sorry, Mayor, you may want the tax returns released, but that's not a constitutional way to do it. Uh, so it is it constitutionally then, do you view that as different from saying, hey, if you don't release your tax returns, you're, you don't get to be on the ballot. Is that, is that, is that sub, it, it's not, it's, it's a distinction without a difference or is it a substantive difference? It's a it's a distinction without a difference. States have a lot of leeway in how to uh, arrange things like ballot style and uh, qualification. They don't have the leeway to use that to effectively change who gets to run for president. And uh, that's where the qualifications clause comes in. That's where the, uh, what I think uh, certainly all the seven justices in the majority uh, would acknowledge that the federal government's legitimate role in regulating elections for one of its own offices uh, give it the supervisory authority, whether exercised through Congress or whether exercised through the courts, simply being overseers of the process. Okay, so there are limits on the standard to which states may uh, make choices about who can be on the ballot and who can receive electors. 
Yeah. Again, the dissent by Thomas and Gorsuch doesn't address this, so we can't be as sure how they would vote on this. But uh, in a lot of other cases, I think that Kagan has uh, is representing a consensus. Uh, we are in the business of regulating federal elections to some extent. We're not going to get out of the business and resign it to states who may have uh, self-interested or wacky ideas about how to uh, do it. We're going to impose some uniform federal standards, at least when it comes to federal offices like president. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.